Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. This morning we have the privilege of studying, uh, continuing our study of Isaiah, and we're going to look at Isaiah 53. But even before we get to Isaiah 53, I want you to take your copy of the scriptures and go back to Acts chapter 8 for just, just a brief introductory moment. Acts chapter 8, as I said earlier, details the preaching of the gospel that took place beyond Jerusalem into the regions of Samaria, where we learned, as we just read, uh, that large numbers of men and women were believing on Christ and giving testimony to that belief through baptism, which is what we always do when we believe and trust in Christ. And while all that was going on, the apostle Philip is prompted uh, later on here in, in this chapter to travel down to Gaza for what will ultimately be a providential meeting with uh, an Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, That's recorded for us uh, in verse 26 of chapter 8. And it says, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. And so Philip got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. So Philip's traveling along. God brings him alongside this entourage returning from Jerusalem. They're coming back, and, and uh, he's this Gentile court official who, in God's providence, just so happens to be reading Isaiah. And like many of us, he's confused. <laughs> he's a little lost. And so Philip comes up alongside him, and the Holy Spirit again kind of prompts his heart to approach him this individual, and talk to him. In verse 29, it says, And Philip's, the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. And Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I, <laughs> unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. You say, Well, what was the, Philip, what was the Ethiopian official reading that was so cryptic in Isaiah? What was so um, beyond his understanding? This official, we see, was reading a portion of what will be our text this morning in Isaiah 53. In verse 32, it says, um, now he, uh, this passage of scripture, which he was reading was this, he was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth? This official is reading a portion of our text in Isaiah 53, and I want you to, uh, to notice his question in verse 34. The Philip, uh, eunuch said to Philip, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Does he say this of himself or of someone else? And Philip's response is as clear and as, uh, as, as wonderful as you would hope it would be, verse 35, and Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Isaiah 53, like the additional three uh, uh, descriptions of the Lord's servant that we've seen already in uh, in chapters 40 to 55 of Isaiah, reveal to us uh, a powerful prophetic portrait of of not of Isaiah, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Philip opened his mouth and preached Jesus to this individual, this Ethiopian God-fearing Ethiopian individual, the rest of the narrative tells us that he trusted Christ, and because of his immediate dependence and trust on Christ, he, he went 
And he was baptized right then and there, and verse 39 says he went on his way rejoicing. And so as we read Isaiah, and, and we've been looking through as a block, chapters 40 to 55, we learn about this individual, this agent of, the, of God, of Yahweh, called the Lord's servant. And we see many different aspects of, of who he is. He is one who brings justice to the nations. He is the one who hears the Lord's word. We're told uh, in these servant songs that he walks in perfect obedience to his heavenly father. And as we're going to see this morning, he gives his life as a sacrifice in the place of sinners and rises from the dead to redeem a people for himself. We know him, and Philip, the apostle, knew him to be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. And as we read Isaiah 40, chapter 40 to 55, the, what, what we've called and what theologians call the book of the servant, we, we cannot unsee Jesus in all of that. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. The fingerprints of Jesus, the faithfulness of God is inescapable as we read through Isaiah. God, through his mouthpiece, the prophet, has promised a glorious future for his people. And Isaiah 40 to 55 are, in many ways, God's reassuring hand kind of coming around the shoulders of his people and resting there, confirming that God's word is true, that his word will be confirmed. These chapters are meant to sustain a faltering, faithless people. It, 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 they're people who are living in exile and, and it measure, these, these, these chapters measure out heaping portions of comfort and assurance and, and reassurance that the ultimate renewal and restoration that God has promised is coming. It will not fail. God hasn't been defeated by the no-gods of human imagination. God hasn't been one-upped by any earthly superpower. Right? God hasn't even been uh, uh, fettered by the faithlessness and the idolatry of, sinful, of his sinful people, Israel. Despite all that's going around uh, and going on around them and around us, at bottom, these chapters teach us that the Lord is the King of kings and the Lord can be trusted. He is worthy of our trust. I mean, it, just as you read through these, these uh, 16 chapters, how many times does God say, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me, there is no God. He says it over and over, or some variation of that, over and over and over again. God we saw cares for his sheep, his faithless, faltering, flailing sheep, Jew and Gentile. And as we saw, he is going to move heaven and earth to bring them to himself. And in chapters 42 to 44, God revealed his plans of how he was going to do that. And since Israel couldn't do it themselves, they couldn't save themselves. They certainly couldn't deliver themselves out of bondage. They and they could not carry the knowledge of God to the nations. God says, okay, I'm going to do it myself. I will do it myself. And in chapters 42 to 44, he promises two things. First, we saw that he's going to promise an end to their captivity, that there will be national liberation. And then secondly, he promises that sin will be dealt with. There will be a spiritual redemption that takes place in the future. And we don't get the specifics of how that's going to happen, how God is going to forgive sin that's going to be explained to us in what we'll look at this morning. But he promises that it will happen. Sin will be wiped away. Transgression will be dealt with. 
Now, what we looked at two weeks ago in chapters 44 to 48 were God's plans for Israel's natural, uh, national liberation, What's, what, how he's going to lead them out of bondage. God had promised that they were going into captivity. That was inevitable. He saw that in chapter 39, and that's exactly what happened. Starting in 605 BC, Judah starts to be taken into captivity in waves into uh, Babylon. But the Lord is going to raise up, he promises, a, a ruler, a Gentile ruler, whom he calls his shepherd, he calls him his anointed, and he names him and tells him that this individual is the one that will bring Israel back into the land, that God will not for, for, has not forgotten them. And we, we saw in that study that earthly events are the outworking of heavenly decrees. Um, we saw that in God's promise to deliver Judah. We saw that in God's personal designation of the Persian king Cyrus, who he was named even 140 years before he even existed, that he was going to be the anointed leader to bring them back. And we saw that in God's providential determination at the end of chapter 40, uh, end of our section in 45 verse 8, he says he's going to use all God's creative power to bring them back out of bondage. But God's plan of uh, it reveals national liberation through the Lord's anointed, this, this Gentile ruler Cyrus. And that's, of course, that's exactly what unfolded. But it also promised, we said, his promise was for spiritual redemption. And that's what's dealt with in chapters 49 to 55. This redemption that's coming and, and is going to be carried out through the Lord's servant. The Lord was going to bring his people back from captivity, but they still needed them, uh, they still needed to be brought back to him, to God. Israel had forsaken the way of peace. Uh, Chapter 48, and I think it's verse 22, it says, there is no peace for the wicked, declares the Lord. They had, and that's all of us, we have all forsaken the way of peace. And even though they have come back out of captivity into the land, they still don't have a new heart. That's the, that's the heart of the problem, is the problem of their hearts. And Jeremiah, of course, later on, di- diagnoses our hearts. He says they are desperately sick to the point that none of us can really truly fathom the depths of our depravity apart from the measuring rod of divine scripture. And God uh, is, is promising that he is going to deal with that problem as well. And, and, and even though I, uh, Israel is going, to, is going to make the claim that God has forsaken them, in chapter 49 and verse 15, he says, Can a woman, this is God speaking to, back to Israel, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, he says, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And even though God has sent them into exile, he makes it clear that this was remedial. It was, it was meant to uh, discipline them. It was not a divorce. He makes that clear in the beginning of chapter 50. He sent them away because of their transgression, but he was certainly capable of bringing them back. Verse 2 of chapter 50 says, what, um, at the end there, he says, uh, is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Uh, or have I no power to deliver? This is God speaking. Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. They, their, their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. God says, my power, I control creation. I can do anything I want. Of course I can bring you back. 
And so God promises restoration. He promises righteousness and spiritual renewal in chapters 51 and in 52. He even exhorts them to, to look ready to be sharp and alert for his promised deliverance in chapter 51 and verse 17. He says, rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling. And then chapter 52 and verses 1 and 2, he says, awake, awake. This is, you know, these are commands to, to look alive, to be on the alert. Clothe yourself in strength, Zion. Clothe yourself in beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. And that, these chapters take us up to the final verses of chapter 52 and into chapter 53, where the Lord's servant and his saving work are then developed and they are described in vivid detail. Here, as we get to the text that we actually want to look at this morning, the problem of man's sin is going to be finally, it's going to be completely dealt with. And although we've seen God promise in the, already in this book to forgive iniquity, he's going to wash their filthy garments, he's going to redeem his people from divine judgment, the question all along has been, how? How's he going to do that? Right? How, how does a holy and just God forgive sin? How, how does a righteous judge acquit those who are guilty? And you know, that's the question. How is this going to happen? It's been a mystery. He keeps alluding to it and the outcome of it. He's describing this new heavens and the new earth over and over again in different sections. But how? But the answer is not given to us until our text, until we come to chapter 52 and 53, which is where we are this morning. And the answer is God is going to do it through the substitutionary work of the Lord's servant, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see this morning is in five distinct movements, Isaiah, like a master conductor, is going to lead us through the servant's saving work. You could think of it like a, like a, a musical composition that has various movements to it. That's what we see here. We see this is, this is Yahweh's magnum opus. And in five stanzas of three verses each, Isaiah leads us through the servant suffering with incredible prophetic accuracy hundreds of years before the events unfold. And here we see the grace of God, we see the love of God, we see the wisdom of God, and we see that God knows the future. Not only does he know the future, he reveals the future before it happens, and thirdly, he controls the future. And every detail of his saving purposes will be established. And so we're going to walk through this text this morning, beginning in chapter 52 and verse 13, all the way down to the end of chapter 53 in verse 12. We're going to break this out into five distinct sections. In the opening movement of the servant's work in verses 13 to 15, we come face to face with the servant's unexplainable identity. We come face to face with the servant's unexplainable identity. Look at verse 13. God says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, although if you go back into chapter 51, uh, there, all along in 51 and 52, there have been these commands. God says, listen to me in chapter 51 and verse 1. Look to Abraham, your father, verse 2. Pay attention and give ear to me, verse 4. 
Uh, in chapter 51 and verse 17, we saw him calling us to, to be alert, rouse yourselves, awake, awake, and so forth. There's all these exhortations. But the question is how? How do we do that? How do God's people do that? I mean, isn't that the problem? You and I on our own can't listen. We can't look. We can't pay attention to God in our own strength and our own capacity. We, we can't rouse ourselves like a dead person. We, we can't awake ourselves up from deadness to sin. We, we certainly can't depart from our sin and purify ourselves. You know, earlier, Israel is called God's servant. Israel is, is referred to with this, this, this title of servant. But God realizes, and we realize as we study through the text, that Israel couldn't be what God created them to be. God had created them to be a kingdom of priests through whom and, and by whom he would disseminate the true knowledge of himself throughout the world. And they, they had failed at that. But here, as we come to chapter 52 and verse 13, we're told to look to the Lord's servant. Here we're told that he will be what Israel could not be. He will prosper. That is, he will act wisely in such a way as to bring about the intended result that is desired. He will be, he says, high and lifted up and greatly exalted. If that, those terms high and lifted up sound familiar, it's because we've heard them before. We've heard them before in chapter 6. Do you remember in chapter 6 and in verse 1 when Isaiah has this vision of God's throne? God's throne is what? It is high and it is lifted up. It's the same exact terminology. And this hints at and tells us something about the servant's identity. That he is a man, but he is more than a man. He is more than a man. He is the man from heaven. The servant's ministry will be successful. His work is going to be crowned with heavenly blessing. Peter even alludes to this passage when he preaches in Pentecost. When he tells the crowds in chapter, Acts chapter 2, Jesus have, he says, Jesus, having been raised from the dead, has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. Later on, Heralding the good news to the crowds, Peter says to these folks that are gathered in Solomon's portico, he says, Peter is God's servant. I mean, excuse me, Jesus is God's servant. Peter says this. So the servant's work is going to culminate with success, and he, the servant, will be showered with divine glory. But yet, in the very next verse, there's this reversal. Look at verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, speaking to Israel, my people, so his appearance, the servant's appearance, was marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. You say, wait a minute, what's that? God, you just told us to look at, to look to your servant, that, uh, that the result of his work was going to be victory and, and success and prosperity, and now you're saying he's going to be He's going to be humiliated, that he's going to suffer, and that humiliation and suffering will be as shocking, it's a comparative here, as shocking as our humiliation, Israel's humiliation and suffering has been. And, and in reality, what he, if you understand what he's saying here, in verse 14, the humiliation and suffering of the servant is going to be even more intense than Israel's suffering because when Israel and Judah go into captivity, even in their darkest moments, in the most difficult times, they're still recognizable as a people. 
as a nation. But the language of verse 14 says that when the servant is humiliated, people will wonder, not is he, is he who he is, but is he even human? That's the thrust of that. He is the Lord's servant, and yet, verse 14 says, he will suffer. And the result of his suffering, that is summarized in the most surprising way for us in verse 15. He says, thus, this is kind of gathering up what he said, thus, as a result, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. We are told that through the servant's suffering, he is going to sprinkle many nations. You say, what does it mean to sprinkle many nations? Well, under the law, the act of sprinkling with blood from a sacrifice was done by the priest to set apart people, to set apart objects like the tabernacle or the the priestly garments, to set those things apart for the Lord's work. Sprinkling with blood has the uh, idea of signifying ceremonial cleansing and atonement for sin and sin's corrupting influence. And Isaiah is saying that through the servant's suffering and humiliation, he will cleanse not just Israel, but who? Many nations. God, through his servant, will save and sanctify a people from every tribe and tongue and people group. And and we've seen him allude to this throughout the book already. Blessing and salvation to the nations has been a big part of Isaiah's message. But here he summarizes how the servant's priestly work is going to be extended to the Gentiles. And he says it's going to happen by his being marred more than any man. He says even kings will be amazed and dumbfounded. Miles will be stopped when they realize that the servant's brutal suffering leads to blessed exaltation. We've all had moments in life where something so incredible, so unexpected happens to us that we literally are speechless. We just stand in awe. And that's how God summarizes the work of his servant in verse 15. We're left in verses 13 to 15 in many ways kind of perplexed, right? How can such exaltation emerge from humiliation? How can such humiliation culminate in worldwide benefit? What kind of person is this? And how is this going to work out? And so that's what we see that's going to be explained to us in chapter 53. So we are, we are come face to face in this section with really the servant's unexplainable identity. But the second movement of this servant song in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 53 describes God's unbelievable strategy. That's kind of the second point in our outline. It describes God's unbelievable strategy. Isaiah begins to unpack some of the factual realities of his servant, his suffering servant, this one who is exalted and humiliated, this one who is appalling and yet cleanses the nations. The speaker here in verse 1 is, is Isaiah, and he speaks as Israel and as, uh, among Israel and as their representative. In verse 1 he says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's a sense of, of disbelief here, a, a sense of surprise almost in verse 1. Again, 
because these are all, all this whole thing is, is kind of one big unit. In chapter 51 and verse 9, we're introduced to the arm of the Lord. And the arm of the Lord is God himself in chapter 51 and verse 9. He is the one parting the waters of the Red Sea. He is the one redeeming Israel out of bondage in Egypt. In chapter 52 and verse 10, the arm of the Lord is bared before the nations, right? He's rolling up his sleeve, ready for action, ready to work and accomplish salvation. But in verse 1 of chapter 53, the arm of the Lord is mentioned a third time. He's, he, he is the Lord's servant, but he's not who anybody expects. You can almost paraphrase verse 1 like this. Who could have believed that this was the arm of the Lord, that he would be revealed in this way? It all looks wrong to an unbelieving world. His birth, his life, his ministry, his station in life, none of it fits the bill of a savior of the world. Verse 2, he, For he grew up before him, before God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He is despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. John, the Apostle John, under the Spirit's inspiration, cites these opening verses of chapter 53 to confirm that, that Israel, and really the na- all of our rejection of Christ, was a fulfillment of Isaiah's description of the Lord's servant, who was spurned by the people, but exalted by God. In John chapter 12, in verse 37, John writes, But though Jesus had performed so many signs before the people, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? These things Isaiah said because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of him. So like Abraham, Isaiah saw centuries before he even existed, Jesus' day, and he rejoiced. But the world did not, by and large, did not see that. They didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. They looked at Jesus just like they do today, and they thought, there's nothing to look at. There's nothing to look at. He's unimpressive. His appearance, his lowly upbringing, his kingdom message is is unattractive, and the world is going to size him up. That's what it means to esteem him. They're going to account him as a nobody, as a no one. They would look at Jesus' life, his sorrows, his suffering upon the cross, and they would wrongly pass the verdict over his life of guilty. He must be guilty. John 1, verse 10, he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made, think about this, the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. I mean, from the get-go, it was rejection. And that's how the unbelieving world looks at Jesus even now. That's how we all probably looked at Jesus at one point in our lives. He's just a good teacher. He's just one of many religious figures in human history who's encouraging ethical behavior. He's, uh, He's not the arm of the Lord. He's not God in human flesh. He's certainly not the king of kings whom I owe absolute trust and allegiance in. I mean, look at him. 
I mean, all of this seems like such an unbelievable strategy. This cannot be how God is going to redeem his people. This cannot be the arm of the Lord that's supposed to save the world. This can't possibly be the one that Paul says in Ephesians 1 is the one in whom God is going to sum up all things in the world. He's a nobody. But that's exactly what God intended from eternity past. And in verses 4 to 6, the purpose of the servant's lowliness and his humiliation and suffering emerge and become clear. So in the first moment, we see and come face to face with the servant's unexplainable identity. In the second movement, we learn of God's unbelievable strategy. And in this third movement, in verses 4 to 6, God unveils the servant himself as our unblemished remedy. God reveals himself, uh, reveals his servant as our, um, as our unblemished remedy. Look at verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. In the previous verses, the servant's suffering is wrongly attributed to God's displeasure with him personally. Right? He wouldn't be going through this if he wasn't under God's judgment. But here we see that his suffering isn't because of his own sin, but because of ours. The servant is going to bear and carry our sin burden as if it is his own. This is the same terminology we see in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 22, where the animal would bear the, the iniquity of the people and be carried off into the wilderness, lifting that burden, that guilt, off of the shoulders of the people. This these verses that we're looking at are, this is the language of substitution. This is the language of substitution. And the servant is God's agent, and we are the clueless observers. The, the, the pronouns are emphatic. There's a way of saying things in every language, English, Greek, Hebrew. There's a way of saying things to give emphasis, right? We all do it. We don't even think about it in English or whatever your native language is. And that's true here, too. The 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 pronouns are emphatic. He was pierced. He was crushed. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging. What the servant does, Paul, uh, uh, Isaiah says, he does alone. He does this. Salvation is not a cooperative effort. It is not, God does his, you know, God doing his part, you doing your part. No, Christ did his part and we trust in his perfect work on our behalf and that's it. That's it. Christ is the perfect, unblemished remedy for our sin. And we shouldn't rush past the, you know, these are well-known verses and sometimes we can just blow past them. We should not rush past the cause and effect relationship that is spelled out in verse 5, right? He says, our transgressions were the cause, his suffering to death is the effect. Our iniquities were the cause, his being crushed is the effect, God doesn't, in other words, God doesn't sweep sin under a rug to deal with it. He judges it. He judged it justly at the cross. 
the chastening or the punishment that your sin, that my sin deserves, that punishment fell on him to restore peace with the triune God. A peace that we forfeited the moment of our conception and lost a thousand times over through every act of disobedience. But the good news of the gospel is that the Lord's servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, stepped forward in love and for his own glory, and he brings us back to God. Verse 6, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The end of verse 6 tells us there's a shepherd who so loves his wandering sheep that he voluntarily yields up his life in their place to bring them back to himself. There is hardly a more beautiful and succinct summary of the gospel in all of scripture. Baptist preacher, not very well known, man by the name of Octavius Winslow, his contemporary of Spurgeon and Ryle in England, captures the heart of our Lord's suffering in our place. He says, so completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself. Think about this. He created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the wood. We don't pick it up in the English, but as you study verse 6, there's a tone of astonishment in verse 6, the way it's organized. It ends really... What he's saying is to think that he would do that for people like us. That's, that's you know, all, after all we have gone astray and all of us have turned on our, our own way, he has laid the iniquity of us all on him. To think. He is our unblemished remedy. Unexplainable identity. Unbelievable strategy in verses 1 to 3. We see, his un, the, the, we see the servant as God's un, our unblemished remedy. And fourth, in the fourth movement of this, this servant song, Isaiah points us to the servant's unparalleled humility. You see that in verses 7 to 9. These uh, 7 to 9 foretell some of the historical details of Jesus' movement to the cross, his execution, and his death prefiguring those events before they happen. With every detail, emphasizing his humility. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. I want you to take note of the verb afflicted in that opening line of verse 7. There is a reflexive thrust to this term, in the original language. And it's fair to translate it. He, for his part, submitted himself to affliction. There's a reflexive aspect. In other words, he did this by his own volition and for his own, by his own choice. Isaiah wants us to know that the servants, uh, the Lord's servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, went to the cross voluntarily. He wasn't dragged kicking and fighting against his will. No, he freely allowed himself to be treated unjustly, to be afflicted, and he never opened his mouth. He never protested. 
We saw this last week as we looked at Matthew's gospel and the account where Jesus refused to answer their questions in fulfillment of this scripture. Christ's movement to the cross for us was an act of his own conscious will. It was not ignorance. He was not a man who got swept up in the moment and got dragged off. He set the bar and he set it in motion himself. One of the reasons that the animal sacrifices under the law could never, one of, not the only reason, that the animal sacrifices could never fully atone for human sin was because those animals had no awareness or personal consent. They were part, they, were, they just got grabbed and bled out and sacrificed. There was no personal consent to be an individual substitute Only a perfect human being can substitute for another human being. And the servant is the great shepherd of the sheep. We know him, but he's also the unblemished lamb who willingly offered himself in the place of his children. And we know that because, and we know he's unblemished because Isaiah tells us in a million other places in scripture that his death would be an act of injustice, the likes of which the world had never seen and they'll never see again. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, verse 9, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The middle part of verse 8 is kind of saying, like, who would have thought that a man like this would be cut down in his prime? A man who was innocent, having done no violence, having no deceit in his mouth. Earlier we learned that the servant is one who hears the word of his heavenly father and obeys it perfectly. It's not a surprise then when Jesus comes out to meet John the Baptist in the wilderness. John cries out in John 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I have to think that Isaiah includes the details of Christ's death here in verse 9, not just to understand that how he ended up in Joseph of Arimathea's grave, who was, he was a rich man, though Jesus was, was crucified like a criminal, but really to hammer home Christ's humility. Christ's death was the ultimate act of humiliation. I've said this uh, several times before, and I think it bears repeating. If you've ever had the privilege of walking with someone through their final days and uh, into eternity when they pass away, you know and understand that there's a real indignity with death. There's nothing glamorous about it. Our bodies really are made out of dust. And here, Isaiah tells us that the God of life himself in his true humanity would lay his head in the grave. The next time that we are tempted to arm ourselves and react aggressively for being treated unfairly, we need to reach out and we need to consider the meek endurance of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter actually makes this connection for us. 
He says, you've been called for this purpose, believer, since Christ also suffered for you. And here's why, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And then he quotes this, he committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in his mouth. He's quoting Isaiah 53. Christ's death, this supreme and wondrous death, was at the same time an unparalleled demonstration of Christ's humility. But the servant's death is not the end. Because in verses 10 to 12, in this fifth and final movement, Isaiah heralds the servant's unquestioned victory. His unquestioned victory. The final verses, 10 to 12, pull the curtain back and help us understand that this was God's sovereign plan from the get-go. Isaiah doesn't use the word, uh, in, if you look at verse 10, he says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, this servant will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion, probably could better translate that, that is the great with many. Speaking of the, the portion is the people he receives. And he will divide the spoil, the booty, with the strong. In other words, he will take from those who are strong and have that himself. But he poured out, because, and he will do that because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Isaiah doesn't use the word resurrection here in these verses, but that's exactly what he's describing. He describes the servant alive and well after his death, and the servant is enjoying the salvation that he has accomplished. The Lord Jesus laid down his life as a guilt offering for sinners, and because of that, he has justified the many. Verse 11, he says, He shall see it and be satisfied, which is kind of an idiomatic way of saying he will be satisfied by what he sees. This is the risen Savior described here, enjoying the reward of his saving work, and that reward is all those who share in his eternal life. It's us. Jesus hints at this in John 6 and verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. These are the many. All throughout Isaiah, you'll see the many described, referring again and again, to the ones the Lord has called to himself. They begin as sinners, but are adopted as sons and daughters. If you're in Christ this morning, as many of us are, you should look at the servant's work here and wonder, really wonder, like Isaiah does in verse 6, to think that he would do that for a person like me. Romans 5, verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.
If you haven't surrendered your life to Christ this morning, you've been looking at this passage along with us, like the Ethiopian eunuch, trying to process what Jesus has done for you as a sinner. I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. And it is by his wounds that you can be healed. And that's exactly what Isaiah says as you get to chapter 55. As he ends this section, look at verse 6. The call goes out across the world. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Christ will not become your only hope until he becomes your only hope. As the hymn writer tells us, the Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. He reminds us, none shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. Let's pray. Father, we... We are just amazed at the richness and the power and the clarity with which you have revealed yourself through Isaiah and not only revealed yourself centuries before your incarnation, life, ministry, death, and resurrection, but fulfilled every detail exactly according to your word. Your word is true, Lord. We can deny it all we want. We can make excuses for why we don't have to submit ourselves to it or obey it. We can become indifferent to it and dull of heart. But we cannot deny its power, and we cannot deny the truth of it. And, Lord, if there's any here this morning who are not confident that they have made you their only hope, may you draw their hearts to you. And also, Lord, we pray for those who are in Christ that we especially as we come around the Lord's table, help us to remember that you did all that for a person like us. We thank you for your love for sinners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.